Section three of Elizabeth and her German Garden by Elizabeth von Arnim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three, May fourteenth. Today I am writing on the veranda with the three babies, more persistent than mosquitoes raging round me, and already several of the thirty fingers have been in the ink pot and the owners consoled when duty pointed to rebukes. But who can rebuke such penitent and drooping sunbonnets? I can see nothing but sunbonnets and pinafores and nimble black legs. These three, their patient nurse, myself, the gardener, and the gardener's assistant, are the only people who ever go into my garden. But then neither are we ever out of it. The gardener has been here a year, and has given me notice regularly on the first of every month, but up to now has been induced to stay on. On the first of this month he came as usual, and with determination written on every feature, told me he intended to go in June, and that nothing should alter his decision. I don't think he knows much about gardening, but he can at least dig and water, and some of the things he sows come up, and some of the plants he plants grow, besides which he is the most unflaggingly industrious person I ever saw, and has the great merit of never appearing to take the faintest interest in what we do in the garden. So I have tried to keep him on, not knowing what the next one may be like, and when I asked him what he had to complain about, he replied, Nothing. I could only conclude that he has a personal objection to me because of my eccentric preference for plants in groups rather than plants in lines. Perhaps, too, he does not like the extracts from gardening books I read to him sometimes when he is planting or sowing something new. Being so helpless myself, I thought it simpler, instead of explaining, to take the book itself out to him and let him have wisdom at its very source, administering it in doses while he worked. I quite recognized that this must be annoying, and only my anxiety not to lose a whole year through some stupid mistake has given me the courage to do it. I laugh sometimes behind the book at his disgusted face, and wish we could be photographed, so that I may be reminded in twenty years' time, when the garden is a bower of loveliness, and I learned in all its ways of my first happy struggles and failures. All through April he was putting the perennials we had sown in the autumn into their permanent places, and all through April he went about with a long piece of string making parallel lines down the borders of beautiful exactitude and arranging the poor plants like soldiers at a review. Two long borders were done during my absence one day, and when I explained that I should like the third to have plants in groups and not in lines, and that what I wanted was a natural effect with no bare spaces of earth to be seen, he looked even more gloomily hopeless than usual. And on my going out later on to see the result, I found he had planted two long borders down the sides of a straight walk, with little lines of five plants in a row. First five pinks, and next to them five rockets, and behind the rockets five pinks, and behind the pinks five rockets, and so on with different plants of every sort and size down to the end. When I protested, he said he had only carried out my orders and had known it would not look well. So I gave in, and the remaining borders were done after the pattern of the first two, and I will have patience and see how they look this summer before digging them up again, for it becomes beginners to be humble. If I could only dig and plant myself! 
How much easier, besides being so fascinating, to make your own holes exactly where you want them, and put in your plants exactly as you choose, instead of giving orders that can only be half understood from the moment you depart from the lines laid down by that long piece of string. In the first ecstasy of having a garden all my own, and in my burning impatience to make the waste places blossom like a rose, I did one warm Sunday in last year's April, during the servants' dinner hour, doubly secure from the gardener by the day and the dinner, slink out with a spade and rake and fervishly dig a little piece of ground and break it up, and sow surreptitious Ipomia and run back very hot and guilty into the house and get into a chair and behind a book and look languid just in time to save my reputation. And why not? It is not graceful and it makes one hot, but it is a blessed sort of work, and if Eve had had a spade in paradise and known what to do with it, we should not have had all that sad business of the apple. What a happy woman I am living in the garden, with books, babies, birds, and flowers, and plenty of leisure to enjoy them. Yet my town acquaintances look upon it as imprisonment and burying, and I don't know what besides, and would rend the air with their shrieks if condemned to such a life. Sometimes I feel as if I were blessed above all my fellows in being able to find my happiness so easily. I believe I should always be good if the sun always shone, and could always enjoy myself very well in Siberia on a fine day. And what can life in town offer in the way of pleasure to equal the delight of any one of the calm evenings I have had this month sitting alone at the foot of the veranda steps, with the perfume of young larches all about, and the main moon hanging low over the beeches, and the beautiful silence made only more profound in its peace by the croaking of distant frogs and hooting of owls? A cockchafer darting by close to my ear with a loud hum sends a shiver through me, partly of pleasure at the reminder of past summers, and partly of fear lest he should get caught in my hair. The man of wrath says they are pernicious creatures and should be killed. I would rather get the killing done at the end of the summer, and not crush them out of such a pretty world at the very beginning of all the fun. This has been quite an eventful afternoon. My eldest baby, born in April, is five years old, and the youngest, born in June, is three, so that the discerning will at once be able to guess the age of the remaining middle or May baby. While I was stooping over a group of hollyhocks, planted on the top of the only thing in the shape of a hill the garden possesses, the April baby, who had been sitting pensive on a tree stump close by, got up suddenly and began to run aimlessly about, shrieking and wringing her hands with every symptom of terror. I stared, wondering what had come to her, and then I saw that a whole army of young cows, pasturing in a field next to the garden, had gotten through the hedge and were grazing perilously near to my tea-roses and most precious belongings. The nurse and I managed to chase them away, but not before they had trampled down a border of pinks and lilies in the cruelest way, and made great holes in a bed of china roses, and even begun to nibble at a jackmanny clematis that I am trying to persuade to climb up a tree trunk. The gloomy gardener happened to be ill in bed, and the assistant was at vespers, 
as Lutheran Germany calls afternoon tea or its equivalent, so the nurse filled up the holes as well as she could with mould, burying the crushed and mangled roses, cheated for ever of their hopes of summer glory, and I stood by looking on dejectedly. The June baby, who is two feet square and valiant beyond her size and years, seized a stick much bigger than herself and went after the cows, the cowherd being nowhere to be seen. She planted herself in front of them, brandishing her stick, and they stood in a row and stared at her in great astonishment, and she kept them off until one of the men from the farm arrived with a whip, and having found the cowherd sleeping peacefully in the shade, gave them a sound beating. The cowherd is a great hawking young man, much bigger than the man who beat him, but he took his punishment as part of the day's work, and made no remark of any sort. It could not have hurt him much through his leather breeches, and I think he deserved it. But it must be demoralizing work for a strong young man with no brains looking after cows. Nobody with a less imagination than a poet ought to take it up as a profession. After the June baby and I had been welcomed back by the other two with as many hugs as though we had been restored to them from great perils, and while we were peacefully drinking tea under a beech tree, I happened to look up into its mazy green, and there, on a branch quite close to my head, sat a little baby owl. I got on the seat and caught it easily, for it could not fly, and how it had reached the branch at all is a mystery. It is a little round ball of grey fluff, with the quaintest, wisest, solemn face. Poor thing! I ought to have let it go, but the temptation to keep it until the man of wrath, at present on a journey, has seen it, was not to be resisted, as he has often said how much he would like to have a young owl and try to tame it. So I put it in a roomy cage, and slung it up on a branch near where it had been sitting, and which cannot be far from its nest and its mother. We had hardly subsided again to our tea when I saw two more balls of puff on the ground in the long grass and scarcely distinguishable at a little distance from small molehills. They were promptly united to their relation in the cage, and now when the man of wrath comes home, not only shall he be welcomed by a wife decked with the orthodox smiles, but by three little longed-for owls. Only it seems wicked to take them from their mother, and I know that I shall let them go again some day. Perhaps the very next time the man of wrath goes on a journey. I put a small pot of water in the cage, though they never could have tasted water yet unless they drink the raindrops off the beech leaves. I suppose they get all the liquid they need from the bodies of the mice and other dainties provided for them by their fond parents. But the raindrop idea is prettier. End of section three.